Hello there. It is now the summer here in France. A moment for us to look back on this last parliamentary season here in Europe, which got underway in September 2021. We're here on France 24's Europe team. Part of our job has been to travel around the continent to hear from locals and decision makers in the EU's member states. And we've picked out a few moments that have stood out for us in our last few programmes. Well, the first half of this year, 2022, has been dominated by the war in Ukraine. Not an EU member state, of course, but a neighbour which shares its border with four EU countries. All of these countries have taken in large numbers of Ukrainian refugees. In Poland, we went to visit a charity-run centre that was set up from scratch in March. It's currently housing around 120 people, as well as offering free childcare and psychological support. Director of the Volnanam Foundation, Agata Kluczewska, showed us around. The residents, uh, we have about 120. So now we are in our uh, biggest dormitory. You know, it's, it's really uncomfortable, but there's our condition. Uh, and I want to show you the smallest room. This is the room of the, uh, our family from Kharkov. This is uh, mom, Oksana, with three uh, boys. And they decided to stay here because they don't have any perspective for going so, uh, somewhere else. In the first of the March, it was empty building, without anything, without furniture, without showers, without uh, uh, bathrooms, without anything. So it was just abundant and empty. We have uh, private donors. It's huge companies, but it's, uh, it's uh, small companies too. It uh, are some kind of associations. They give us some money for innovation. And we are still don't have any money from the uh, municipality or from the government. Well, as we record this, more than three million refugees have entered Poland. The vast majority of them still there right now looking to find longer-term homes, jobs and school places. Polish politicians of all political colours told us why it was important to them to show this solidarity towards Ukrainians. You're going to hear from former Foreign Minister Radek Sikorski, now in the opposition. You'll also hear from opposition MEP Roja Thun. The opposition and the government basically have the same attitude that we should be helping Ukraine. Solidarity is a word that is highly, highly valued in Poland. And there is a genuine feeling of brotherhood with, uh, with Ukraine. And you yourself have had Ukrainian refugees in your home? Ten initially. They've now gone on uh, to Germany. Uh, I have another group of uh, a family of three. The Polish government has pushed very hard for more tougher sanctions on Russia. Some other states resisting that. Is the Polish government taking the right stance? Uh, yes, I think it is, because we need to uh, deprive uh, Putin of the money to continue with this war. And we should make ourselves less dependent. As soon as the Russian soldiers are gone, those women with children want to go back, join their families, their husbands who are there in war, rebuild their houses. Um, I myself host six persons and they want, from eastern Ukraine and they want to go back. Well, the Polish government, too, is proud of its open arms policy for Ukrainian refugees. It also insists that there is a distinction between this crisis and other recent inflows of people seeking asylum. Here's the Polish deputy foreign minister, Martin Psidacz. 
during the migration crisis in 2015, the, um, the case was that those people didn't want to come to Poland. The, it was rather the European Union which was trying to force them to come to Poland or to live uh, in our territory. We well, are the people of free. We are the country of free people. Whoever wants to come uh, is very much welcome as a refugee. Mm -hmm. But we are we, we are not going to force anybody to live in our country. Under international law, people who are fleeing wars are entitled to protection in, in a safe country. In 2015, the vast majority of those who were fleeing Syria or who were like just escaping from Africa, Poland was not the preferable um, destination for them, which is not the case in, with Ukrainian. Well, away from the war in Ukraine, issues of asylum and irregular migration into the EU remain somewhat unresolved issues. The EU's member states still haven't signed off on a pan-EU migration policy. The Mediterranean archipelago of Malta is one of the EU's major entry points for people seeking to enter the bloc without the necessary papers, many of them having paid people smugglers to get them there. In Valletta, Cameroonian asylum seeker Felix told us about his experience. On the 22nd of November 2019, I arrived in Malta after crossing the sea from Libya. Once in Malta, the situation was still difficult. I spent eight months in detention without being told why. We didn't know why we were being held in prison. There were eight men in each shipping container with bunk beds, no heating, and even the windows were broken. About your treatment in detention, can you tell me a bit more? We would shout, freedom, freedom, freedom. You have to free us because we don't know why we're here. One night, policemen arrived. They shut off the lights. They made everyone go outside. Some people got hit with rubber bullets in the chest. We just asked why we were there. And what's your daily life like now? There aren't really integration lessons. We do casual work that most Maltese people can't do, like in construction or cleaning or in hotels and the like. The situation for migrants here in Malta is quite problematic. Well, in January of this year, the European Union gave its asylum office new powers and made it into a full EU agency. We spoke to its director, Nina Gregory, about the issues in Malta and across the continent. Of course, there are European standards that European member states should adhere to, and we are helping them to achieve that. Um, here in Malta, we are um, basically trying to, in a way, improve the capacity building of the reception situation with Maltese authorities together, of course. So one focus in Malta is um, the asylum procedure, but the other part is also to improve the reception conditions in, in the uh, reception camps. Of course, this agency, like all EU agencies, is a non-political body. But of course, asylum is such a hugely political issue. Do you sense resistance from the member states in improving those asylum facilities? Because we know in a lot of them, there's pushback against that. People saying if you make it, quote unquote, too nice for asylum seekers, it will attract people and a lot of Europeans don't want that. Mm -hmm. I think that that was a bit of a, let's if I may use the word old political narrative, I think it was. I think that the conditions are really heavily improving. I'm super really proud to say that we really invested a lot together, of course, with the European Commission in this situation in, in, in Greece in particular. You remember 
um, Moria situation and the camps there, people really living in horrible conditions. But now this has really much improved and I'm happy that we are able to contribute to that through, of course, our support in, to the individual specific cases. Well, another issue that we wanted to explore in Malta, freedom of the press. It's almost five years since the Maltese journalist Daphne Caruana Galizia was murdered while she investigated alleged corruption. Luke Brown went to report on why many Maltese people believe the case is still far from closed. In 2020, Prime Minister Joseph Muscat resigned amid mass protests and allegations that his chief of staff was linked to the case. None of the alleged masterminds have yet faced trial. Last year, a landmark public inquiry ruled that the government did bear responsibility for the murder, blaming it for creating a climate of impunity. Its recommendations have yet to be implemented by the new government. Daphne's family continues to fight for justice and pursue her legacy. Malta has a chance to turn itself from a pariah, a negative example, into a positive example, show the way forward. The public inquiry was a huge achievement in itself. There's never been a public inquiry into a journalist's murder anywhere in the world. It's a world first. That's what Malta has to do. It's got to fix all the problems the inquiry documented. And all the people Daphne exposed have to be prosecuted and face justice themselves. Well, let's take you now from the EU's smallest member state to its largest. In Germany, a new coalition of socialists, Greens and Liberals came to office in the new year. This was just a couple of months before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Now, Germany had suffered catastrophic floods in July 2021. They killed over 200 people in Germany and neighbouring countries. Our team visited a flood-struck town in the Rhineland and spoke to Green MEP Daniel Freund. Not sure they're, they're ever going to go fully back to normal. People are rebuilding. We see that uh, everywhere. Whether businesses come back the same way they were before, we don't know yet. We're fighting for that, but we, we don't know. And of course, we hope that some of this reconstruction is a chance as well to not repeat some of the mistakes of the past. Well, those floods brought renewed attention to calls to transition away from dirty fossil fuels. The new coalition government coming to power, promising to maintain Angela Merkel's promise to take Germany out of nuclear power production. And they brought forward plans to exit coal-powered electricity as well. However, the issue of balancing environment and employment remains a major question, as Luke Brown reported for us. The Garzweiler open-cast mine 30 kilometres from Dusseldorf, an area half the size of Paris, chewed up to extract brown lignite coal. The dark side of industrial Germany's hunger for energy. For environmental activists, this is one of the front lines in the fight against climate change. So this is um, the open pit mine. That's where they dig, they dig the lignite and um, they burn it right over there. All the mines in the area and the power plants together are the biggest source of CO2 in whole Europe. The activists call this site a zone to defend. Here they live in tree houses, which will make any future evacuation by the police and security forces more difficult. Over there, up there you can see a small platform, which is quite uncomfortable with wind and bad weather. And that's why we need to construct a more solid, much bigger platform. 
Since 2006, the mine has displaced 12,000 people. But in the woods and homes around the site, a resistance movement has sprung up. Five villages have been saved. Here in Lutzerat, one local farmer has appealed against the court ruling condemning his land to the diggers. And activists like Indigo have decided to act where the government is dragging its feet. It says, it says 1.5 degrees means that Lutzerat stays. Um, yeah, to like show that it's actually insane to continue burning coal if our governments have agreed to limit the global warming on under 1.5 degrees. The Gartsfeiler mine was supposed to be in use until 2045, but its closure could come by 2030, in line with new government targets. The mine's operator is investing over 10 billion euros in renewables to compensate. Germany's last deep coal mine closed in 2018, but coal still represents a third of Germany's energy mix, three times the EU average. In the region of North Rhine-Westphalia, balancing the economy with the environment is a delicate task. The new SPD-led governing coalition in Berlin has promised to end coal usage by 2030, but in Dusseldorf, the SPD insists that it mustn't penalise the local economy. The most important condition is that new jobs must be created for the mining sector. We need new industries and new jobs in the Rhine region. We cannot be in the situation where our businesses and households find themselves suddenly without electricity. Germany still has over 50 operational coal power stations. Dateln 4 is the most recent. It only opened in 2020. Its operator insists it's much cleaner than older stations. But last year, a regional tribunal ruled that the Dateln plant was illegal. That could see the 1.5 billion euro site demolished. For Friends of the Earth, it's a sign of a clearer, cleaner future. We're expecting the federal government to act decisively, because if the objectives of the Paris Accords to protect the climate are to be reached, we must end by no later than 2030 the use of coal to produce electricity. And the Dateln 4 plant must be closed as soon as possible. For now, Dateln 4's fate remains undecided. But to reach the coalition's goal of a so-called coal exit by 2030, Berlin wants renewables to make up 80% of its energy mix, almost double the current level. Well, that's nearly the end of this Look Back programme. But before we leave you, we will stay with the environmental theme. Our trip to Slovenia, giving us a sense of how post-COVID restrictions, European destinations are trying to balance the return of tourism with green concerns. Luke Brown reports from a zip wire. Welcome to the Socha Valley. In the heart of Slovenia's Julian Alps, this is the longest zip line in Europe, zigzagging across the Ucha Canyon, high above the Cascades. It's not for the faint-hearted, but that's not put off tourists. In the past decade, visitor numbers have more than doubled in Slovenia. The biggest attraction here, rafting on the river's crystal clear water. But the valley is a victim of its own success. It's inundated with tourists in the peak months of July and August. The local tourism board is using artificial intelligence and remote cameras to keep track. How many rafts, how many mini rafts, how many kayaks and other types of vessels are present on the river that will be able to build up a policy on how much is still sustainable for the, for the environment. 
In 2019, the tourism sector represented 10% of GDP and nearly 100,000 jobs. But for the locals, that mustn't come at the expense of what makes the natural environment special. Well, after the summer, we will be heading back out into the European Union's 27 member states to explore the big issues impacting on the EU's almost half a billion citizens. Time now, though, for a short break. In part two of our Look Back programme, we'll be looking back on some high-level interviews and debates of the last parliamentary season. For now, though, we'll leave you with some more of those Slovenian landscapes.